0: All right, so we're back, and I'm Bob, and I'm Chris, and Chris this is Chris, and we're back at the. This is the 28th annual Long Island Library Resource Council.
1: Libraries in the future. Libraries in the future. Got yep. it.
0: And we're here with everybody, really. This is a celebrity in library land, Lee this, Rainey. Yes, from, Lee Rainey. From Pew Research Group, is that right? <laughs> Did I say that correctly?
2: Uh, and Oshkosh. Yes. Okay,
0: <laughs> perfect. Uh, so, Lee, it, it's really great to interview you. I've been to uh, tons of your discussions and speeches over the years. Uh, dating back you know so when I first started going to computers and libraries so it really is an honor to be able to have you on the podcast I really want to know how you got started in in doing all this with, with of course with Pew but before that so what's your background
2: first of all thank you for such a kind thing to say yeah. <laughs> um, I was a journalist for 25 years hmm. I started in print journalism the New York Daily News um, I worked on Long Island and grew up on Long Island so this is my home stopping ground. A native. native. A native wow. This is great. And remember wonderful library systems in Garden City where I was a child and then Port Jefferson and Northport Eaton's Neck where I lived when I was here. And I covered politics. I, I was a general assignment reporter first and then I started covering politics and that eventually got me to Washington. So I, I was originally based in Suffolk County and then moved to Manhattan and then spent some time in albany and then moved down to washington in the late 70s and when you're a political reporter one of the things that you need to be is a decently numerate you need to be able to read polls and understand them and others understand other kinds of statistics mm. that the government puts out so i had a, a decent amateur knowledge of all of that kind of stuff and i got this wonderful cold call uh, 20 years ago the pew Re- the pew charitable trust which is a big american philanthropy big foundation it's uh, it's a f- the family name the pew family created it after um the well, uh, the founder of, of the family or the the patron of the family built up a large oil fortune it's a sonoco oil fortune anyway they created a big charity and uh, it, it in the uh, 80s and 90s became a much more public actor in the world. And so they were creating research initiatives around sort of big and usually less uh, well attended to phenomenon. Mm. And so uh, 20 years ago, I got this call from a program officer at Pew saying, we think the Internet's going to amount to something. Uh, (laughs) Go figure. (laughs) uh, And uh, they to the degree that anybody's talking about it, there are these really interesting sort of theological discussions about it. It's good, it's bad, it hurts, it's antisocial, it's pro-social, but nobody has data about um, how how it's being used. We're thinking about creating a center, would you be interested in running it? And I said, heck yeah. Wow. Um, and I didn't I wasn't a technologist. I um, had overseen the building of a website, which made me one of about a billion other people uh, (laughs) in 1999. Uh, But they just offered this amazing thing, and um, and I took it. And there were other uh, organizations looking at similar things at that time. It was, it was a go-go time, the economy was doing well, there was uh, corporate money and other philanthropic money, and, and institutes and individual scholars. Um, but the dot-com bubble burst in 2001 and in and 2002, and, and so a lot of that other activity um, couldn't be sustained, but the Pew Family and the Pew uh, Charitable Trusts uh, kept an interest in this. So we woke up one morning in about 2003 or 4 and by no cleverness of my own and no wisdom really on anybody's part, we became kind of the de facto Census Bureau Mm -hmm. measuring who is using the Internet, sort of the demographics of it, which is a really interesting story because the digital divide was, you know, continues to be a big part of the conversation. There were lots of questions about privacy even then. There were lots of questions about information provision on the Internet, where people Self-diagnosing and self-medicating because of the health information they found online. Right. How no. how dramatically might the internet affect public education and things like that? Because there was all talk about one laptop per child in classrooms and things like that. But the sort of the basic story about adopting and social impacts became our story to tell, and I. Feel like I'm an accidental monopolist, I, I, <laughs> uh, which is a great place to be, especially yeah. when you're a public good. And um, and we, it's been an interesting march too. Uh, the other thing that was so wonderful about it is, I don't know of any other social scientists who's seen three revolutions on his or her watch, and the fourth one is right on our right. Uh, yeah. on our doorstep. Yeah. Yeah. So we covered the rise of broadband, which was zero at, uh, in the population when we first went into business. We covered the rise of mobile connectivity, especially the rise of smartphones, which again was zero when we first went into business. And we covered the rise of social media, particularly social media platforms. So, and now the fourth revolution is sort of the internet of things, 5G, artificial intelligence and things like that. So there's lots to study.
1: Well, isn't that interesting where, you know, when somebody studies something, they usually pick a point where it's existed in the past and they pick a point and measure from that point forward. Think in terms of the weather service. They've only been gathering data since 1880 something. So we don't know what happened before that. We know that weather existed and we know that things happened. We just, it was never measured. But think of how interesting and important it is that you had a baseline that you started with, with zero. And you have, a, it's, it's a full data set that's continually growing. Yeah.
2: Yeah. One of the inspirations when I was doing the background research about trying to convince Pew that this was actually a good thing to spend money on, I was reading literature on uh, other mass communication technologies and and their impact, and there were no sort of statistical underpinnings, but there was a wonderful book called Forecasting the Telephone, which was written in the 1970s, but it went back at the turn of the century, so late 1890s, early 1900s, and looked at the things that elite commentators were saying about the likely impact of the telephone. And I, I got so excited about it because, I, again, that was a backwards-looking thing yeah. without real data connected to it, and uh, we got to study this thing in real time. But it, it's so interesting. My, one of my frustrations as a researcher on this stuff is even though that we were in at point zero in many of the phenomenon we study. Um, when people worry or, or are interested in the impact of the Internet, you, you want to know how much stupidity there was in previous cultures. Because people right. are, yeah. you argue the Internet makes you stupid. Or, sure. it's yeah. making, sure. How much narcissism was there and right. how much credulity, how many people believed fake news kinds of, of things. And there aren't, those, there aren't those data. So it's kind of frustrating to not be able to sort of say the impact of the internet was amounted to this because we don't have the precursor data about the broad right. political and social phenomenon that we are now studying. Yeah.
1: And it's almost as though, like you mentioned, fake news, that wasn't even a term pre Trump. Right. So, how do you go back and measure something that wasn't even defined until a particular event or a particular period of time where it was a recognized thing? It's almost an you're all gonna roll your eyes at me, but it's almost like the Da Vinci code, right? You decipher the code after you have all the words for the event and then it's in the Da Vinci code. So it's kind of like going back and looking back to interpret what already happened even though you know what happened. So it's interesting that, can you even backtrack to see what, talk about fake news? Going backwards, I mean, you could talk about... Yellow info- journalism. There you go. Yeah.
2: yeah. So, the, actually, the Rand Corporation has a team of researchers doing projects that are related to this, and they've generated some fabulous work. So, they, they, they don't tell you net, with a precise data point, how much... Um, fake news there was, <laughs> yeah. but they, but they can talk about the broad phenomenon emerging in the penny press and the yellow press, and mm-hmm. then how the culture fights back. you know the, the, the cultural response to the, to the waves of fake news that came out of yellow journalism was investigative journalism that 's how you get Ida turbo because there was such contention over what was true and what was not, and whether self interested information was being promoted over you know, real facts and things like that. Yeah and so they they're beginning to construct a really interesting portrait again not necessarily with deep deep data but they have now gone back and looked at the shifting tone of media and other discourse in the culture as the internet was arising so there's more opinion now just generally in the ecosystem than there used to be opinion and commentary there is more uh, sort of personalized language rather than you know the standard media format was to be sort of Disinterested and to have an arm's length relationship with data. Now there's a lot more personal commentary, so it's an interesting reconstruction of the past uh, that that's going on now. But you also have to remember, too, in defense of all of us, you don't start addressing problems till you see them. So the so the first great communications law in this country. Well, there are some, but but the first broadcast related one came after. Uh, in in the 1930s when people were beginning to think that the mass communication systems that were arising in radio and then eventually in TV were allowing really bad actors to exploit them like propagandists. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you look at that, the 1934 communications law and then the rise of mass communication schools. I mean, it wasn't a thing in the academy until decades later, but now journalism and mass communication became a thing that scholars were studying in part because of the problems that people... Were, we're worried about now. You're getting an incredibly interesting wave of academic work that's being done on all of the problems that are associated with techlash, and and so, in a way, certainly my children and grandchildren are going to profit from this response. But the the precursor data are just sort of sometimes really hard to uh, pull together.
1: That is crazy.
0: It's interesting to, to think about how long A has to exist before B, the rise, right, of the response to A comes. Yeah. Right? So it, it's, that's the, the fear that I guess I, I look at is, is how long does A have to go before people rise up and say we need a B, right? It's,
2: it's usually so, a minimum of a generation.
0: And that's scary because uh, well, if you're in that generation, If you look right? at
2: the yeah. deployment of technologies, that's right. when the first sort of concern about electricity began to arise. Well, there were some concerns in the very early days about its safety and things. But one of the things that we're really interested in studying now is that now that some of these problems have surfaced, what are going to be the interesting civic and social responses to it or the antibodies that form on it? If you think about the Industrial Revolution, it was underway a pretty long time before you got child labor laws and right. before you got environmental protection laws. You kind of needed that discarded yeah.
1: stuff to happen and exist in order to correct it because it wasn't yeah. right.
2: Yeah, mm. yeah, and, and monopoly power and things like that. So we're just now in that transitional moment where the first wave of enthusiasm and the first wave of concern has emerged. Right. And there's lots more discussion now in the policy arena about how to address it. But it's, it's always been true throughout history. The technology gets developed first. It deploys in society people don't quite understand where th- things are going, in mm-hmm. part because people themselves Are learning changed, too, right? That, uh, learning yeah, too and yeah. adapting the technology to their purposes. Remember right. Edison? How are they
0: going to use it? Edison right. invented
2: or was part of the telephone conversation thinking that the telephone was going to be awesome for, dis- for sending concerts to people through their phones. <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: and, and the first wave right. of commentary about the likely impact of the telephone was there's just going to be this idle chit chat and gossip and it's just going to be- Nobody's going to leave their homes. Yeah. Right. yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So uh, we're in that moment now, which makes it just incredibly exciting to be a researcher well, it, thinking it, about this. And
1: it's funny how you mention that, because I'm like an old radio buff. And back when CBS first started, it was, you know, one office in Manhattan. And then you had um, NBC and you had, I think it was the red network and the blue network. And at some point, the government said, NBC's too big. We need to split the two networks. And one became ABC. Mm-hmm. So again, talking in terms of you don't know until you know, you know that's that's a great example also of okay they became too big. It was pre well I don't know if it was pre monopoly because NBC really didn't have a monopoly, but they had so eclipsed CBS that I think the federal government stepped in and said we have to split them up. So it's that same that same kind of taste and texture, which
2: which speaks to the two phenomenon that are really challenging to think about now. So. A big question in the policy community is, what of the existing traditional stuff in law and in regulation perfectly well applies in the internet age? I mean, libel laws, pretty darn good, tons of legal case law on it. We know what libel looks like and feels like, and same thing with defamation but does it have such a different character now when so many people have access to it and so many people can pile into it and so many people can make accusations and things can escalate. You know, Something that starts out as a not very pleasant name calling all of a sudden becomes you know physical threats and right. violence and things like that. So the question is are we in a moment where how much of the traditional stuff still serves us well and how much of it needs to be adjusted to the new realities? And a lot of the policy um, conversations around that the second related thing is that all of us are guilty of thinking that the moment that we live in is year zero. Mm. And, <laughs> we and, start now. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, and so there, there's just this sense that the internet has so different in so many ways and we've never had to wrestle with these issues before and we've never had these experiences before when in fact, you know, um, people have always been, had some level of social panic about any new technology. You know, it's gonna hurt kids, it's gonna hurt communities, it's gonna destroy <laughs> right, right, the, the, yeah, yeah. the tranquility of nature or whatever. And so there's, this, there's also this sense that we've never been through this as a species before when, in fact, it, th- there are clear right, analogs yeah. in the past that we probably ought to learn right. from. In
0: every generation, we've panicked yeah. about something or yeah. other, right? Sure. In, For in some, radio, television, another, television right? yeah. the
1: telephone. Yeah. 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 The
2: yeah. Comic books. Everything. There was a yeah. stupendous sure. cultural sure. panic about Video games. Everybody. Video games
0: were huge. Yeah. 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 That continues on still, to today. And, yeah, and still yeah. Yeah. online yeah. gaming. Yeah. yeah.
1: So let's transition to talking about Pew Research in the context of libraries. I, for being in the profession, I always find it fascinating that Pew Research takes the time to analyze what's happening with libraries, what's the, the, the big data of libraries, and what's nice, I mean, and maybe we're kind of being biased, but it's nice that we get that information about the value of libraries. Because it's something that we're always pushing in library land, is pushing the value of a library and how libraries are underutilized. And, and in fact, based upon the last few years of research, the millennials are coming in and the Gen Xers are coming in. So everybody thinks, oh, it's just the old people sitting in the corner taking out the latest you know, Danielle Steele book, mm-hmm. when in fact, it's not. So can you expand on sure. that a little bit?
2: Well, one of the early mistakes I made as a, as a, as a grant Proposer to Pew was that I, I, I wrote a grant proposal. One chunk of which was the um, stakeholders for this kind of information, and I, I had to make an argument and persuade them that there were people who would be interested in basic inter, inter, excuse me, internet statistics, and then sort of questions about social and political and economic impact. And I didn't use the word library or librarians in that first pitch, but the minute that the first Um, publication that we issued was in May of 2000. And it was a broad look at the internet and its role in people's social lives. And the minute that thing was published online, the library community knew how relevant it was to the work of librarians. And the pass around. I mean, librarians are, are crazy, connected evangelists for stuff like that. Right. And so, <laughs> yeah. and so the learning, the, the learning sort of you could watch it catch fire in the viral way that lots of things do now. And so, even before we began to do dedicated library work, the library community was sort of tuned into what we were doing and very nice about it. In part because of that, the Gates Foundation then uh, was in the midst of its transition from underwriting a lot of hardware and software purchases in public libraries and thinking that its most useful contribution to the library world would be data like ours so that librarians could figure out where they stood in the world, maybe use it for their own strategic planning purposes, and certainly if it came out well, uh, use it for marketing purposes. So we got two Gates grants, and, and the Pew Charitable Trust was incredibly supportive of this. So for six years, we did very dedicated library-focused work with this wonderful uh, set of grants from, from Gates. And, it, and, it, and, it, and it, it was so interesting as a researcher to do it, because not only were, were we sort of in, in the same community as the library community, but librarians are in, in many ways on the front line of the changes that everybody else is going through. Um, and, and librarians and journalists have, have seen, and musicians in an interesting way, have were the first uh, to see the disruptions that were gonna, gonna occur in their lives. And so studying how librarians think about this and think about the institutional implications of this and think literally about do we buy a printed book or do we buy an e-book? Right. And what do we do with the stacks in our, in our? How, how do we think about reconfiguring our space to be much more inviting for community activities and programming and things like that? So it was a really interesting bird's eye view on um, communities in the midst of dramatic change and all of the things surrounding it were changing as well, so library schools have reinvented themselves to be something way different from the way they were when they were teaching people uh, you know, a generation or two ago. Um, and, and librarians have been in the thick now of interesting conversations literally about how to reinvent the university because the business model of universities now is, is much uh, under siege by a digital phenomenon as the library and journalism and music worlds were not long ago.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned universities because one of the measures of whether or not you were going to go to that university was based upon the collection in the library. How, how central was the library to the university? How, what, how many holdings did they have? What access did you have to, to the materials? And we're talking about tangible, physical materials. And now, it also applies now to, to public libraries too it's not about the tangible materials anymore because it's not about the physical tangible anymore. It's about the the data and about the subscriptions of yeah. e-publications. So the way that you measure the success of a library has really turned upside down.
2: Yes, but the... The service the service
1: stays the same but the the method is upside down.
2: But you got to feel for everybody who's uh, in the library world and especially library administrators because the world hasn't yet fully transitioned to digital life. And and so right now our data show that people still years and years after ebooks came into existence 3 to 1 people prefer and read printed books yeah and yeah. ebooks and, and the right. number the ebook sales have flattened um, in the past couple of years and so mm. there, there's a tension you know literally what do you spend your money on where do you place your investments uh, there's also um, an, a, a, a sort of culture clash in the audience so the people who have, who have forever have loved libraries love the stuff that libraries have always done mm and don't want you to mess, in some respects, with the traditional things that have always attracted them to the, to the libraries. And yet you're still, it's, it's literally the um, innovator's dilemma. You now have a new class of people who expect things delivered in a new way and under different circumstances and don't necessarily feel like they need to go to a physical place right, to get yeah. the, their, their information learning needs met. And so they've got this one audience that is familiar people who go to libraries and love libraries and support library bond initiatives and things like that. And then this whole new cluster of folks who have a bunch of different needs and they would need to satisfy them both. The other related element of that dilemma is that librarians uh, almost universally feel like they're in business or they're in their, they do their work because they want to serve all the needs of all the people. And
1: that's a tall order. That,
2: you know, in the internet age that's a that's a particularly tall order because the, the, you can put a face on all of those needs so you know exactly as you're making decisions about where to invest and how to reconfigure your space, who's going to be happy with it and who's not going to be happy with it. And it's, it's never the case that you're going to make, you know, a brand new constituency happy without kind of annoying or right. even... Um, Harming the, the, the old constituency that has been your best buddies forever.
1: And, and that's the challenge. The challenge is moving forward and doing these other quote-unquote things, as I hold air quotes up, uh, but yet not making the people who are used to the traditional and, and the, the stuff that libraries have always been to them unhappy. And it's very hard to say, you know, tough luck. We're moving in this direction. And that isn't getting done anymore. So libraries are very good at continuing to do the service that they've been doing for the last gazillion years, yet still moving forward and depending on the facility and the funds available at whatever pace they're moving at, to move forward, to do those new things, yet still maintain what they've been doing in the past. What other industry does that? I can't name one. Really, well,
2: you know, in a way, it's um, think of Kodak. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, you know, think of musicians who used to live off those the relatively album sales, expensive yeah. CDs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, there, it is the innovator's dilemma. Clayton Christensen taught the world about this: that it, it's very hard to disrupt a business model. In this case, again, air quotes around business mm-hmm. model for libraries, but it's very hard to change a, a sort of struct, set of structures and processes that are working for you, and um, and so you've got to create, in his view of added looking at industry, you need to essentially create a side and adjunct entity called a skunkworks right. to make sure that you're still watching the phenomenon that unfolds, but not necessarily messing with your best customers.
0: Right, finding, finding a place you can introduce the disruptive technology yeah. while not yeah. disrupting the people that supported your ability
1: yep. to
2: do that. Yeah, who <laughs> are like mm-hmm. right? paying yeah. the bills and who exactly, are, yeah. you know, your sort of your best patrons. That's right, yeah.
1: Right. So let me ask you this question, and this is more of a demographic question. As the baby boomers progress forward and get older, how do you see, based upon what you've seen with the stats, how do you see libraries transitioning as the baby boomers get older, and I don't want to say age out of libraries because they never really do, but how do you, if you could, you know, read tea leaves, um, and I'm not putting you on the spot or anything, what do you see as a trend in the future as the baby boomers transition into their 70s and their 80s and their 90s, because many are living into the 90s and becoming centurions, what do you see as that group becomes smaller and transitions and becomes older and the next? Set or generation that comes up, what do you imagine seeing happening in libraries?
2: I think librarians would be well advised to watch some of the technology trends that are particularly um, or, or possibly more interesting and appealing to seniors than others. So, if you look at uh, robotics, and you look at um, this movement called living in place, where where there's 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 a lot of effort in the technology world to create enabling technologies that allow people not to have to move out of their homes or their apartments into assisted living kinds of places. There's a lot of ferment in there. There's a lot of money to be made in there. And so librarians might be on on call to help people understand these new technologies, literally learn how the robot works, literally learn how to voice communicate with your uh, voice assistant. (laughs) <laughs> uh, uh, how, to, how to wear a, a monitoring bracelet that's going to give your vital signs to your hair, healthcare care provider and stuff like that. So, to the degree that librarians are sort of frontline actors already in, in helping people master new technologies, th- th- I think there's a way in which baby boomers might be really interested in staying engaged, in part because librarians are able to, they think of librarians as able to be good. Uh, just passionate, not trying to sell you stuff, kind of allies uh, in that transition. The other thing is that you know there are more knowledge products coming out all the time, and uh, algorithms, artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning, all that kind of stuff. To the degree that seniors are engaged, and seniors, you know, up to that point in their life, were the best educated generation ever. Now it's it's going to pass along, but they um, they will, li- I can see them being really interested in the new set of literacies and mastery around that kind of stuff that um, that that would keep them engaged with libraries to the degree that libraries become tra- translators or enablers of, of folks to understand the new world. That being said, you know, the, the implication of your question is true. The, the, the sort of demographic bulge, particularly for millennials, but now we're, We've, you know, the Gen Z folks, they're younger siblings who are now in college. You know, so millennials have have stopped being born. They stopped being born, in our estimation of Pew, we said uh, January 1, 1997 was the first day that a Gen Zer was born. Hmm. Um, It's a sort of calculation that we made. There's not full-on science to it, but it's a good break point in part because the people who were born since then... Had some sense of this 9/11, or at least grew up with that being a deep reality of their uh, growing up years. They certainly have a vivid sense of the 2008, uh, 2009 Great Recession, and and so they had a completely different set of formative experiences growing up than millennials did, who grew up in the ni- in the 90s with the collapse of the Soviet Union, with Columbine and things like that. So. Um, You can see that libraries are going to get more focused on tech, but you can also see that that one of the striking social phenomenon that's part of this age is that uh, even as tech now mediates so much that's going on between people, there's a huge hunger for people to be together. Mm. And so the meeting space, learning space, I mean, people really expect libraries to be... at at the forefront of lifelong learning processes and things like that, maybe offer special training programs in conjunction with community colleges or conjunction with local businesses and stuff. So you can see that the pattern of usage of libraries with younger users will have a a different flavor from it from their elders. But I would argue that, in some cases, the relevance of libraries across the generations, it's it's that all things to all people kind of phenomenon. There are ways in which libraries in the, in the imagination of baby boomers might be incredibly useful, uh, even though you might suspect that they might drop off.
1: You know, and one thing that, that libraries, and this is, this is the great challenge. So now, moving past the baby boomers, talking about the people in their 20s, the people in their 30s, the people that drop off after being a teen. You know, they go the, they're in a the teen space, and now they've transitioned out, and now, in libraries and this is I'm making a broad generalization library land don't shoot me and kill me too late you know, well it's happened before don't judge you on your way exactly so they age out of teens now they're not allowed to go into teens anymore and there's this void and what happens yeah college comes and getting married comes maybe having having children having a house, career yeah. right so it kind of peeped, it there isn't anything that has that, that gravitational pull to keep them there once they go 18, 19, 20. So the trick for libraries now is how to attract those people to keep them once they transi- transition out of teens and into adults. Uh, they're not really adults yet, but they're age-wise, they're adults. So what we've done over at my library is we've designed programming that starts in children's, transitions them to the next level in teens and then they transition, so this is all makerspace stuff, mm-hmm. where they then transition to, well, now there is that place once they age out of teens, they can come to the makerspace. They can come to the collaborative area that we have. They, there's a place for them. So not having that, that place marker for them once they age out of teen, I think is where libraries need to start focusing to say, well, here is the next step. And it's, it's more than just programming. You have to have a space because everything is space-defined now, especially in public libraries. So the makerspace, what we're seeing is they're coming out of learning what they've learned with 3D printing and robotics and all this other stuff. They then come, oh, well, now I can go to the adult makerspace, and now I can continue this process and continue doing these these cool things, and we're seeing a transition getting the 20-something-year-old males in the space. So I can't say it's a glowing success. It's not a blueprint, but it's it's just a tool to keep the people coming in and doing different things. And then if they decide to take a book out or a DVD or something else too, that's just the cherry on top, that's the whipped cream. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking in terms of wanting to attract those people, you can't, ju- I don't think you can just do it with classes, you have to do it with a space, because that generation is very, I need a space, I need a place to go, it, it, it's not as though like I'm probably dating myself now, you just went and you kind of made your own way. You know, like when you're a kid, you build your own fort. You don't go to the store and, and, and buy the fort and then build it. You went and you, uh, Statue of Limitations is up. So I could say I went to the back of the store and stole the pallets and made my own fort and made your own space. I don't think that, that Gen Z or, or the millennials really have that concept. So having a space that's predefined that they can now go to in the library helps them to stay and retain coming in.
2: That makes a lot of sense. Uh, the researcher in me is constantly trying to figure out um,
1: There's a psyche, we, right?
2: Well, it, it just is, the social science of it is some things change with people as they go through life events. And it's a constant story, whether you're a silent generation, or a war generation person, or you're a millennial now. When you get married, your life is, is different. <laughs> when you have a child, your life gets different. When you settle down and get a mortgage, your life is different. And so the patterns of how people evolve are sometimes set by their own life course and, and, and you know you know the benchmarks of it. The other element of that is there are some things where different generations have such different experiences that the cohort is, is the moving part that the baby boomers do have different experiences because they grew up on TV and radio and rock and roll and yeah. as opposed to the the, gen, the millennials and Gen Zers now. So there's always a tension between life events and sort of is this the nature of the cohort that's, that's going through it. I would argue that you, that, that makes sense with the maker spaces and, and, and its appeal. What, what I would imagine that you'd see, and certainly our data support it, is when people start getting married and start having babies, they will come back for the same reading programs that they as right. kids yeah. enjoyed. Mm-hmm. So there are ways in which the life course story also kind of is your friend. Um, and, and again, the, but the cohort story is interesting because millennials are a better educated generation and certainly it looks like Gen Z is going to be a better educated generation. And our data are so clear on this. The higher the, your level of education, the more affectionate you are about the library. Sure. The more supportive you are, the more you go to it, uh, the more you, you use the website. Sort of every metric of engagement is higher if you've got a college or graduate degree than if you don't.
1: So I guess I'm doing something, right?
2: Yeah. It sounds Maybe. Like it. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> data and time will tell.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the whole thing. You got to brew the tea before you can drink the tea, mm-hmm. right?
2: That's, yeah, that's, and we, we give people the tea bags. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, you do it. Uh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's Pew's business model or, or its phone traffic model, and it's, it's really fun. The, the journalist in me thinks I'm covering and contributing to the biggest story of our time, and it's just fun as can be. Yeah,
1: well, Sorry. it's always great that Pew does this every year because it gives us signposts to use to try to gauge what we need to do next or what we're doing right or what we need to do better next time. You know, so Pew really is a, is a great guiding force for libraries and it really does help out just giving us the data and being able to interpret the data. What I like is being able to look at the raw numbers and do an interpretation that may be a little bit different than that narrative based upon what we feel that our population would benefit from. So it's not just the narrative that you give, you also give the raw data, which is really important to libraries.
2: It's one of the reasons that we hope people trust us is that we share all of our data. It's a public good. You know, philanthropy is supporting it, so there's no sort of downside to that. And we want people to use our data precisely for the reasons that you describe. We have our own stories to tell off it, and we tend to think at scale, so we're much more inclined to take national... Telephone right, and, yeah. and web surveys and tell national stories, but there's a local angle to it, and we cut the data in certain ways to identify age groups and generation groups and things like that. There's no reason why people shouldn't be able to cut it by the age uh, categories and the uh, racial and ethnic group you know differentiators that, that that they want, and so it's you know one of the nice wonderful ways that allows me to sleep well every night is that we're giving it away and people can call us on it you know, and fa- see people can fact check and uh, fact check us, us ourselves and and use the data as they see fit
1: excellent well we want to thank you for coming and taking the time um this has been an amazing discussion and we're so incredibly excited to have had you on the podcast yeah it's really. so thank you so much you for here. coming in and taking the time
0: my pleasure Excellent. Do we we, we have time for one more? Do you want to ask about the Macmillan? uh, Sure. Yeah. Sure. Why not? So you know the ebook Macmillan uh, embargo that they're doing and holding back the releasing of um, one copy. They said I I think is that one copy per. One copy per. uh, I don't know if it's
1: library or system. I think it was per
0: system, but I'm not sure. But where do you think that's going? And and what's the model that they could be basing this on, or or what's their their theory?
2: Um, I don't know for sure i won't yeah. i won't speak for them it's a long-standing practice as particularly in the digital age to you know have multiple business models right. in, in play in the marketplace have multiple touch points with uh, with different customers um have different ways of thinking about your intellectual property and, and testing like the that. waters right yeah to to see what yeah. I mean, it's been so interesting. Actually, in the opposite direction. In the early days, there was there was a lot of talk about a model like that, where you you limit ebook use and things like that, and there was a lot of fear about um, escaping. You know, that, right. that some yeah. great hacker would figure out how to bust through the intellectual right. property. and the book was out there, and that was yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but I think what the common publisher experience and library experience is that that doesn't happen, that people wait in line. They're not happy with waiting in line for books, but they're not, you know, it's, it's not the newest thing in the world for them to right. popular books have been hard to get for a long time, whether they're in printed form or not. And so it's a, it's a market test and, and, um, and it's not the first time that people have been thinking this way and um, you'll no doubt get some data or shareholders will get some data yeah, about that's whether right. it works yeah, or they not. Exactly, will.
1: Yeah. yeah. Okay, thank okay you, so. Lee Rainey. Thank you for coming in.
2: It's a great pleasure. It's been my pleasure to be
1: with you. Thank you. Again, thank you to Lee Rainey from Pew Research for taking the time from the conference to speak with us. We're grateful for him coming on. If you have not yet listened, we have two other installments of this episode from the Long Island Library Resources Council's Conference on Libraries in the Future. Segment one is with James Vorbach, the Director of Library and Information Studies at St. John's University, and Edward Tenner. From the Smithsonian and Rutgers University. And segment three is a great conversation with Christopher Jelly, the head of technology at the North Merrick Public Library here on Long Island.